What's happening, people? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Richard Shotton. He's a behavioral scientist, founder of Astro10, and an author. Humans are predictably irrational. By studying these behaviors, advertisers and marketers have been able to boost sales and influence you in ways you might not realize or expect. So it's pretty important to discover just how you're being manipulated. Expect to learn what are the most powerful words in persuasion, which human biases are overtested and overrated, how a small commitment can be the beginning of a huge commitment, which hacks make advertising campaigns stick in people's minds, how to overcome the problem of analysis paralysis, how to change everything someone believes whilst changing nothing they experience, and much more. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite, and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. But now ladies and gentlemen please welcome Richard Shotton. So the last episode that we did, we managed to get through eight out of 16 and a half yeah. psychological biases from your fantastic new book, which is now out and people should go and buy right now. I like that as a bit of advice. Yeah. Yes. The first new, this is half of, a, half of an insight, base value neglect. What's that? Um, so it's, it's an idea here that, people when they are weighing up numbers essentially respond to them naively so the, if you um show people a you know a bowl of jelly beans for example and one of the 10 beans is a is a red bean and you tell people that um they will get a cash reward for picking a red bean you give them the option of picking from either a uh, 10 bean jar with one red or a hundred bean jar with eight reds you find that people will mistakenly want to pick from the larger number so even though the absolute chance of winning drops the fact that there are literally more beans uh, perverts the their decision making so so people re react to the number rather than what the number represents. I think that's where we're, we're getting to with this idea. Uh, because eight sounds like more than one, but it's eight out of 100 as opposed to one out of 10. E exactly, exactly. So 
if you're a marketer, you can start to harness that idea to your to your benefit. So there's a lovely study from Gonzalez, who's at a Gade Business School, and she came up with a study where she shows some people a uh, pack of balloons for 48 pesos. Some people see a 12 peso discount, some see a 25% discount. And in that scenario, people prefer the 25% discount, even though they are mathematically the same. Other set of people, she shows a jacket for 480 pesos. Some people see a 120 peso discount. Some people see a 25% discount. The group that see the 120 peso discount rate it as a better deal than the group that saw the 25% discount. So once again, people are reacting to the size of the number rather than what that number represents. So Jonah Berger heard about this study and he has a wonderful pithy turn of phrase. He said that there is a rule of 100. If you're selling a product that costs more than £100 or $100 or €100, you should talk about your absolute discounts. If you're selling a product that costs less than 100, you should talk about the percentage discount. That way, you're always tapping into this this insight. Didn't you find something to do with why bonuses are more effective than discounts as well? Yes, so really similar set of ideas here. So there is a lovely Rouse study from 2012 where they sell um, hand lotion in a pharmacy for 16 weeks. Sometimes they refer to it as a 35% discount. Sometimes they refer to it as 50% more. And what they find is that on the weeks that they talk about it being 50% more, there are 81% more sales. Now, even though these two things are mathematically the same, people cannot help to react to the scale of the number rather than what that number represents. So it's interesting there because most brands, most advertisers are fixated with talking about discounts. What Rao's study suggests is you should contemplate talking about value added, you know, bonus pack, you're getting more because that will always be a larger absolute number. It seems like it's, it seems like this is, it's, it's how the discounts make people feel. It's like, what, what does this mean for me? Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it. I think that's a better way of putting it, in fact, because what it gets to is a fundamental insight about how people make small commercial decisions, that they don't weigh up these purchases in a, in a fully considered way. They don't spend you know, minutes upon minutes weighing up their shampoo purchase, um, working out whether this is an amazing deal. Because frankly, if you spent that long on every purchase, you would grind to a halt in life. So instead, what people do is they make faster snap decisions. Now, some people call those emotional decisions, but really they're just about, it's about speed. It's about an immediate response. And what people respond to is that number rather than what they should mathematically do, which is respond to what the number number represents. One of the pieces of advice that you have for YouTube YouTube thumbnail writing is to write at an eighth grade level and then make it like more dumb than that. Because as people are scrolling through YouTube, every millisecond of attention that you can potentially get from somebody is very precious. And if you can convey what this particular video is about in a quicker, more easily understood way than the next video, you're going to improve your click-through rate. Oh, yeah, no, no, lovely point. Um, I mean, I think one of the broad things we talked about last time was 
this idea that small bits of friction have an outsized effect. It might feel like, oh, surely I've made such amazing videos. People are going to give me the benefit of the doubt. They're going to work through some of these small barriers that I put in the way. But most studies suggest that is, is, is not the case. So if people wanted a practical tip, one of the things that I've discovered reasonably recently is there is a wonderful app called Hemingway. So it's completely free. Um, you take your copy, you put it into the website or the app, and it gives you a reading age immediately. And you can sit there playing with your copy and it will tell you in real time as you make those tweaks, as you make those adjustments, how you're dropping down the, the reading no age. No way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's brilliant. It'll tell you, you know, if you've got too many um, use of the passive, you've got too many long sentences, too many complex sentences. And it's lovely because it reacts in real time. So you can see your score I- improving. And I would say in terms of copywriting, you're absolutely right. One of the simplest things you can do is pitch a, a much lower reading age than you uh, expect it will it will help extremeness aversion ah extremeness aversion so um lovely set of of studies from originally a psychologist called Amos Tversky so he was the po- research partner for years and years of Daniel Kahneman uh, Kahneman went on to win the Nobel Prize in 2002 unfortunately Tversky had died by that stage and you can't give a Nobel posthumously so he probably would have won the Nobel if he if he'd lived long enough but back in 1993, he runs uh, a, a, a famous study, recruits a group of people, and shows them two cameras. So you've got this basic and cheap camera, let's say, I can't remember what it was, $139, and then a fancy expensive camera for, say, $200. And he asks people, which would you pick? Which would you prefer? And you get a rough 50-50 split. He then gets another group of people shows them those same two cameras, but he also offers this new group a third camera for, say, $400 with loads of bells and whistles, loads of uh, functionality. And what he finds is that only a small proportion of people, it's 21% of people, I think, pick that really high-end camera. But what's of interest to us is the proportion of people in those original two cameras shifts dramatically. It's no num- no longer one-to-one. It's now three-to-one in favour of the fancy camera. Now, he calls this finding, and it has been repeated with beer, popcorn, coffee, all sorts of different products. He calls this idea extremeness aversion. He says one of these quick rules of thumb that we use to decide um, how to behave is to pick the middle option. We fear that the cheapest option will be tacky and uh, will look a bit mean. We fear that the most expensive option will be over-engineered and will look like a a show-off. So the the interesting thing here is you can shift people's willingness to pay by introducing a super expensive item that you never expect anyone to purchase. So let's say you are selling a subscription to your gym program and you offer people well you can have a monthly price or you can sign up for annual and let's say as a gym you are going to benefit by getting loads of people to sign up for your annual rather than your monthly offering what most people would do is just think of well i'll reduce the annual price i'll give people more benefits but if you know about extremeness aversion what you would do is think well let's offer a two-year subscription a three-year subscription you don't expect many people to sign up for that but it's very presence makes the annual option look better in comparison. 
And it's that comparative bit that is so important in pricing. Are you familiar with Substack? Do you subscribe to any Substacks? I don't know. What's Substack? It's a blog platform. It's kind of like what Medium used to be. But okay, it, yeah, yeah. It's very, it's very, very good. It's super, super popular yeah. at the moment. And they have, uh, they are using extremeness aversion. They're using the exact strategy that you're talking about. You can sign up monthly. You can sign up yearly. And then on almost every single person's or creator's profile, there is a founding member option. And the founding member option is usually the equivalent of maybe three or four or five years. So let's say it's um, $10 a month, it's $100 a year, or it's $500 for the founding member. Yeah. Uh, the founding member gets, a, a, I don't know, a commemorative pin or so, some, yeah, something, something yeah, that's yeah. basically pointless and, and a, a logo. But what you're actually doing here is anchoring people to think, well... That that middle middle price is not so bad. I'll go for the I'll go for the hundred dollars one. So anchoring has to be a key bias that extremeness aversion is is linked yeah, in. A, absolutely, and there is a lovely uh, lesser known study by Suckley and Lichtenstein that that suggests that the way that most brands use extremeness aversion could be improved upon. So imagine, I'm sure it's probably the same with Substack. But most things, Netflix, Spotify, you go to their site, and there's the basic option the mid option, the premium option, left to right. The Suckley and Lichtenstein experiment says that is not the perfect approach. What you should do is show people the most expensive option first. So their argument, and it's based on a lovely study and a fancy craft beer bar in America, uh, their uh, argument is it's the first price that you see that is the most powerful anchor. So yes, you want an expensive thing to make everything else look better value, but it's the first thing that people see that sets that expectation. So if people lead, read left to right, you should go high, medium, low, rather than what most brands do, which is low, mm, medium, high. Left that's right. the same. I'm pretty sure I learned this from you on one of our last conversations. The same reason why restaurants should start their menu with some incredibly expensive platter, six-person tasting menu yeah, 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 350 yeah. pounds uh, which makes the overpriced focaccia bread at the first start of the aperitifs yeah make, exactly you've broken out into a sweat when you see that 850 dollar <laughs> thing you think oh my god i'm gonna be i'm gonna be bankrupt so by the time you get to the yeah, the 10 pound focaccia you think wow phew yeah yeah look at how brilliant value this focaccia is yeah, uh, yeah, I, yeah. the same thing goes for wines as well right like just pitch something nice and expensive at the top anchor everything down off that have you ever seen i would, is there such a thing as making that too too big? Would it ever scare people away? No, that's a very good point. So I think you've got to the the, the nub of the matter there. In the Suckley and Lichtenstein experiment, it's, it's running a craft beer bar. So people come and sit down and they're given this menu of, I think it's 13 beers. Either they see the cheapest beer, I think $4 at the top, most expensive $10 at the bottom, or they see the $10 beer at the top, cheapest at the bottom and what Suckley and Lichtenstein find is there is a four percent increase in average spend when the most expensive beer is at the top um now that's brilliant if you run a bar or I think a restaurant because it suggests you should definitely be making sure the first thing people experience is expensive but I think if someone has gone to a bar they're not going to pick up a menu, see one item, drop the menu and walk out without lowering their eyes mm. you know, a millimeter. Mm. They're, they're slightly committed. They've spent at least five or 10 minutes to get there. If you're on a website, 
you're probably not as committed. There's a greater risk of someone coming to the website, seeing a high price and bouncing. So if you run this test, you've got to monitor both average spend and conversion rate. So I think you're right that there is a danger that you take a finding in one setting, you use it elsewhere, and you don't see the results you expect. So e-commerce and bars are, are different things. But what I think so valuable about this study is it at least suggests a test that you might never consider otherwise. And the brilliant thing with these tests is if they work, you run them forever, massive upside. If they don't work, you run them for a week, turn them off, limited downside. So absolutely agree. There are situations in which the experiment might not have the same result if you change the context. And then secondly, that's, yeah, there's a really interesting point about could you push this too far? I know there was a uh, Italian restaurant in Britain called Carluccio's and they pushed it to ridiculous extremes. They had a Vespa for sale on the menu. So a £3,000 Vespa. Now, I think that's a brilliant way of using a radically expensive anchor because you see that and you're not going to suddenly fear that you're going to end up with a really, really expensive meal. You're not going to feel like these people are uh, exploiting you, but you've put out this massive number and you make comparative everything else look a bit cheaper. So I think in that circumstance, the way that Carluccio's did it, you could have a really extreme number and not transgress fairness norms. However, I know there is an argument from negotiators that if you try this on a one-to-one basis, uh, Chris Voss talks about this more from experience, I think, than experiment. But he says, if you go into a negotiation and a pay review and you say, I want a million pounds, well, it's such a ridiculous number that you are seen as acting in bad faith and therefore you discredit yourself. So I, I kind of think that I've always got that Chris Voss voice in the back of my head uh, when, when you're thinking about these, these anchors. So yeah, don't probably push it too far. I wonder whether there is something going on here to do with the categories of the products and which ones are particularly susceptible to what we're talking about. I get the sense that it would be more effective when you are looking at a, a menu or a list of items that are very easily comparable. But if Barker and Stonehouse were to put an incredibly expensive lamp up top, I wonder how much that crosses over when you're in there to shop for a sofa or for a rug or for something else. The same thing goes, I find it very difficult um, to gauge the quality off the price of supplement brands, for instance, because you go in and you go, well, they've got this really expensive protein, but I'm not here for protein. I'm here to buy a new gym bag or I'm here to get whatever. Um, so I wonder whether the, the breadth of the product range allows that anchor to almost decay in some way. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's a really interesting hypothesis i think you're right in that people are probably you know there are so many numbers around us people are going to create their own mental comparison set so ideally you want to be setting a um a high anchor within that mental comparison set i think that makes yeah that 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 seems fair enough i think there you're probably getting to the degree of complexity where it gets the stage of the experiments that exist take you so far. And then each individual brand probably needs to be thinking, well, how can I rerun these studies in my particular store to see what works best for me? Denominator neglect. Denominator neglect. Um, now, I think I might, sorry, in my um, 
uh, in my idiocy at the beginning, I think I've blended together um, base rate neglect, which was the Chow hand lotion experiment. And I think I raced straight into denominated neglect. So when I was talking about jelly beans, I realized about halfway through I might have been um, mis- misquoted. They are so both very a- similar, though. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they do. They um, I think it's that underlying point of the naive reaction to numbers, which is is key. So you want to think, how can I? And it's got to be honest. How can I honestly quote the largest possible um, discount? So you know, uh, base rate neglect. You're talking about uh, maybe thinking about added bonus rather than discount denominate and neglect well that's when you move to areas like gonzalez and the, and, and the rule of 100 you had this thing about stacking discounts in ascending order if you go into if anyone in the uk that's ever shopped in tk max i don't know if they have tk maxes over here in america but that's the sort of store where you would see 40 percent off plus 10 percent off plus an extra five percent off yeah you like i i don't have the computing power to be able to work out what the price of this item is well what people do is they say okay 40 10 5 that's 55 percent off but it's not actually because if you take off 40 your 10 is then off a smaller number and then your five is off an even smaller number still so had have to we'd have to go back and do the maths and i'd probably take me a sat 17 attempts but you end up it's actually like a 51 percent discount so again it's stacking discounts is a way of making people as you said emotionally respond uh, and feel like they're getting a, a a better offering than that they perhaps are you said as well about adjusting the font size to get people to focus on either the sale price or on the original price and you can sort of adjust how much weighting people have there yeah, th- th- this is an interesting one. I think that this one from the the, the Coulter brothers, um, what they show is they recruit a group of people and half the people say, see a original price of £100 in small font and then new price £60 in big font. Other people see original price £100 in big font, uh, new price £60 in small font. And what they show is the second group, the people who see the end discounted price in the smaller font, they think there's been a larger reduction in price. So they argue that people conflate um, physical size of the number with what it represents. So here you want to be a bit careful because it is a one-off study. So is it has it got the same probability of working for your brand as something like scarcity or social proof um, or, or fairness, where there have been meta-analyses and hundreds upon hundreds of studies in, the, in these areas? Probably not. But it's another example of a potential experiment that you can um, apply to your pricing at no cost to yourself and potentially increase your your margins. So I think that is, it's a really interesting one as a an area test that if you hadn't heard of their study, you might never ever think of experimenting on it. The need to experiment. Ah, well, that, that runs over brilliantly. Um, so what we've been discussing so far is sometimes the results you will get from a study will vary by context. And sometimes you will find a study that sounds interesting, but it's only ever been one run, one run once. Now, in those scenarios, 
so if you're either applying a study in a different place or there's not a huge body of evidence for it, you can't be certain it will work. So you need to set up your own experiments as a brand, as a business, to rerun the study, um, but in your category, your specific brand, your specific circumstances. Now, if you're going to do that, you've firstly got a, a great opportunity because all these studies I'm mentioning are in the, the public domain. So you can rerun the methodology quite easily just with those few tweaks that we talked about. And if you do them, though, what you've got to be really careful of is how you test these ideas. So you don't want to be directly asking consumers what motivates them. If you say to your consumers, okay, well, I'm thinking about, say, extremist version. I'm thinking about uh, not just offering you basic and premium. I'm now going to offer you basic premium, super premium. Would that change how you behaved? Your customer will probably laugh at you, swear at you. They'll say, well, I'm not a bloody idiot. Of course, that wouldn't affect me. I will weigh up the amount you're charging versus the benefits you give me. So if you're interested in experimenting, you cannot ask people directly. What you have to do is this simple approach of, you know, what would be called a monadic test. Half the audience has seen one of the offerings. So that's basic versus premium. Half of the audience has seen basic, premium, super premium. And if you split things out in that way, if you get a representative sample, you give them, uh, randomize them into one of these two groups, you keep everything in the two settings the same apart from one variable, any difference in performance, any difference in people's reaction to those offerings, you could attribute back to that single change variable. So yes, you need to experiment, but make sure the way that you experiment is sophisticated enough in that you don't take people's claims at, uh, at face value. Okay, so don't rely on stated preferences, wait for the revealed ones. And monadic, is that just change one variable, don't fuck about with anything else? Yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it's it's a slightly pompous way that, I think that that's the danger with academics, that's the danger with psychologies. They take a basic principle, they give it a fancy name and they confuse the hell out of people. So all monadic means, I think monad is kind of Greek for one or something. People are not comparing side by side. You're randomizing people into groups. And then you, as the, with the bird's eye view, you, the experimenter, give both those groups the reasonably same offering, but you change one variable between the two groups. And yeah, absolutely. Any difference in performance, you attribute to that, that single change variable. I really enjoyed the story that you told. You had seven biases that Ogilvy tested. I think it was maybe for right. charity donations. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, so that's yeah, a lovely example. So, um, what Ogilvy Change do, or Ogilvy Consult, I think they're called now, is they create an annual report. And one of the wonderful things they do is they include things that didn't work as well as things that that did. And they ran a test for Christian Aid, I think it was, in 2018. So 1.2 million um, envelopes go out for Christian Aid and they put a little envelope through your door, which basically asks you to donate money into it. You put money into the envelope and then they'll come around, say, a few days later and collect it. They tested seven different uh, messages. So some of those envelopes that went through people's door might have said, you know, please donate, the government will add on another donation on top gift aid some of the messages said for example you've only got one week to donate they're trying to move people to action scarcity. through scarcity exactly exactly 
And then another one of those seven was using heavier, more expensive paper, you know, thicker paper stock for the envelope. Now, that thicker paper generated twice the level of donations. I think it was 39 pence on average per person versus 18 pence for the, for the gift aid offering. I don't think many people would predict that. Um, it might be easy to post-rationalize afterwards. You could say, okay, well, it's all about costly signaling. You subtly infer that people are a bit mean if they only give a pound and it makes them want to stick a bit more money in so they don't feel guilty themselves. You know, very easy to post-rationalize it. But to say that was going to happen beforehand, I think, is, is unlikely. So to me, it's a lovely example, firstly, of a company admitting what worked as well as what didn't. And then secondly, showing that, you know, it's often very hard. You know, people are complex. It's very hard to know what will work. So if you're in a complex situation, you should be running uh, experiments to prove some of the, these ideas that I'm, I'm saying work in, in generality. They really sort of spread the strategies there as well. One of them was um, there was a special stamp that looked like it had been hand stamped. And they said this has been delivered and, and prepared by hand, which was what's that labor illusion? Yeah, so people got labor illusion, illusion of effort. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that, that's often um, works very well. You know, um, I can't remember if we talked about that last time, but there's a lovely study by Morales, I think it's at the University of Southern California, where she goes out and recruits people and um, gives them a list of, say, 10 houses that meets their, their requirements. Some people are told that the estate agent generated this list automatically with a computer in an hour. Others are told the estate agent took nine hours and they created the list manually. When people rate the quality of the estate agent afterwards, the group who hear the estate agent went to that extra effort, they rate the estate agent, their ability at 36% higher than the other group. Oh, we did. Now, no, we did. We did talk about this. We talked about it in um, uh, the example was Skyscanner. And it was the oh, yeah, 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 loading yeah, 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 bar of yeah. Skyscanner, which yeah, you think yeah, yeah, is yeah, yeah, yes. technologically totally arbitrary and exclusively performative. Yes, absolutely. We might have talked about Dice as well. They're my favourite example. They talk about the 5,127 prototypes they they got went through to create the vacuumless bag. Now, you could argue, well, it doesn't bloody matter how many failures there were. What matters is how high quality the final product is. But what Morales would say is, look, it doesn't matter if it should logically be ineffective. What behavioural scientists are interested in, what does have an effect, and people use efforts expended as an easy way of making a decision about the the quality of a product okay so you would normally expect yeah that emphasis of you know hand delivered uh, efforts going uh, in, in into collecting money to ha have an impact so you know the, the fact it doesn't i think is something that it's very good that this agency admits uh, occurred you, know, you don't want people just to talk about their successes we can learn just as much from people's failures well, you know, looking at the changes in donation that those people had coming back, it was 50% of them were below the control or a good, yeah. a good chunk of them were below the control. So there was some things, I think the scarcity, which most people that come from an internet marketing world, this is a one-time offer. The countdown timer begins as you hit the page, you have 45 minutes to claim this once in a lifetime deal. But when you said Christian Aid needs all donations by the end of the week, what you actually saw was a decrease compared to the control. So, yeah. you know, and who would have guessed that, especially coming yeah. from a world that's bereft of... Uh, absolutely. Uh, and and if someone works, 
in e-commerce, they're probably right to think that for their own brand. There's a lovely, um, huge comparative study run by Swarbrick Jones. I think they look at 2,600 e-commerce studies, a lot of them in travel, and there's 28 different levers that are used across these different campaigns. And they rank the various different biases or levers um, and on their average sales effect. And of the 28 they look at, the most effective overall is volume scarcity. There aren't many of these hotel rooms left. Next is social proof. Lots of people have bought this type of hotel room. Third is what I would call time scarcity, what they call urgency. You haven't got long to act. So you're absolutely right for e-commerce people. I think scarcity is probably one of the first biases, time or volume, that you would think about testing for your product. But I guess going back to that point we made earlier around context is important. What you're probably starting to see here is, well, commercial and charity, what works for the two, you know, they're, they're varied enough that maybe you can't translate some of the findings from commercial settings into charity and, and, and vice versa. I'm thinking about my booking.com experience, which I use pretty regularly. And I'm thinking yeah. uh, X many people have booked this room today. Uh, like, hurry, these rooms are going fast. There's only this many left that we've got in our allocation and all this stuff. So it's every single bing, there's ticking all of the boxes that you've spoken about there. So the next one, which I think is very yeah. important, and it's important not only for marketing, but I think for personal life too, which is framing. Oh, yeah, yeah, very good one. Um, so it's essentially the idea that the same fact can have a markedly different effect dependent on the, the language that's used. So... The study that I discuss is a 1974 one from Loftus and Palmer, uh, the University of Washington. And they play a video, and you can get this, if you people Google um, Loftus and Palmer experimental video car crash, you will see a 15-second video of two cars crashing into each other. So have a look at that. And then what the psychologists did was get a large group of people and they said to some people, how fast were those cars going when they smashed together? Other people, how fast were those cars going when they contacted? Other people, how fast were they going when they collided? So they used six or seven different words. And then they asked people to estimate the speed of the two cars in miles per hour. And when the group who heard the word smashed, when they estimate the speed, they think it's 40 miles point eight uh, per hour. The group that heard the verb contacted, they think it's 31.8 miles per hour. So even though everyone is seeing exactly the same footage, there is a variance of 27% in terms of their speed estimate. Now, the psychologists were interested in um, police witness statements, how people could be influenced by a skilled interviewer. And so they were kind of concerned with how a... Uh, a dubious police person could manipulate findings. But I think if you're in marketing, what you can take from this is the language that they use to sell your product can be varied to huge impact. So, for example, one of my favorite studies that isn't very well known is one from a Texan psych or a University of Texas psychologist called Peterson. And he gets a large group of people, shows them an e-commerce site, and for every purchaser, one of the items they're trying to buy just isn't there. Now, sometimes on the site, it's labeled as unavailable. Some people see out of stock. 
other people see sold out. When he questions those groups as to how irritated they are with the website, he sees a swing of 15%, with the people who see unavailable being the most irritated, people who see sold out the least irritated. Now, everyone is is essentially like the Loftus and Palmer study. They are experiencing the same thing on an objective level. It's just the language that's used to describe that situation varies. And if the website emphasizes unavailable, they're emphasizing their logistical ineptitude. If the website emphasizes sold out, they're emphasizing how popular this product is. Uh, They're harnessing social proof. So the argument here is people do not experience events. They experience the, um, the description of events. And if you change that description, you can radically change people's reaction to the same situation. One of my favorite examples of this was from Sam Harris, and he says that everybody knows what it's like to finish a workout. You are sweating and panting on the floor, and you've got the taste of metal in the back of your throat, and, and you're hot, and your heart rate's through the roof. This is a situation which, oddly, despite being kind of objectively uncomfortable at the time, is actually oddly enjoyable exclusively because of the framing that you place around it. Now, if you were to spontaneously feel that while you were sat in traffic on your way to work, you would ring the hospital. You would think that there is something terrible with me. So our story of what we tell ourselves around an experience very much is the determinant of the experience as well. Like the story that we tell ourselves largely influences what the experience feels like to us. Yeah. So that, that that's, a, I've not thought about it that way. That's a lovely example. I never really th- often don't think about these uh, experiments in a personal setting. I'm always thinking about them from a, a commercial setting, but I, um, I came back from a stag do once and the flight uh, landed very badly. And I'd always been a, not particularly keen on flying, but that freaked me out. And I developed a fear of flying. So I'd have to fly for, for work. Yet I spent the entire flight thinking, what would it be like to fall for five minutes from this plane that's bound to um, explode in the air? Now, I tried all sorts of things to distract myself, you know, having a drink, um, getting into a book, doing a crossword, whatever it was, all, the, all these different things to try and get over this. None of them worked. The thing that worked was listening to heavy metal, rap music, anything that has a, you know, a adrenaline-fueled reaction in normality. So I'd listened to it as we were taking off. And I think it over time changed my response from thinking this is a signal that, that my adrenaline is a signal. This is a very dangerous situation. I'm going to die to the adrenaline flooding my body. Well, that's just how I normally react to this particular song. Oh, wow. So I'd never put the two and two together, but I think you're absolutely right. That's an example of reframing exactly the same decision by putting a, a different lens on it. Yeah. You'd, you'd used. This isn't like a cue that people would play calm music in order to be calm. This is a cue from your body. I'm full of adrenaline, so I will play music which is associated with adrenaline. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. So I always listen to exactly the same song. Uh, I'm not particularly into rap. But, what is um, it? I have a workout playlist. And one of them is um, Kanye West, um, uh, School Spirit. So He's cancelled cancel- like now. Richard, ah, we can't, okay. We well, can't, we can't talk. I know you can still listen to him. You just can't yeah. can't take his views on the Jews too seriously. Well, um, yes, I was only his music. Yeah. So you, there was another thing to do with, um, and everybody's aware of this. When you buy mince or, or ground beef, as it's called yeah, yeah, out here, yeah. do you want to call it seventy five percent lean or twenty five percent fat? Framing. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. So there's, a, I think that is a 
Levin study. I might get the, the name wrong, but essentially it's describing the same situation. But if you say 75% lean, people will think the meat will be tastier. Uh, they think it will be less greasy. If you emphasize 25% fat by drawing te- people's attention to that particular element, you get a very different different reaction. Um, you, so- you, you also had the thing about um, using the benefit of using nouns rather than verbs. Oh, yes. So there is the idea that if you remind people that they are a voter, they're more likely to follow through and, uh, and, and, and vote on the actual election day than if you say to them, um, will you vote? So oh, will you, you be a voter be and they agree? Yeah. Will you vote? And they agree they are more likely to follow through if they have described themselves as a voter, probably because the voter, that noun describes who we are. You know, it's, it's part of our identity in nature. If you're just referring to an action, that's something that's fleeting and not particularly hypocritical. Oh, not, to, not to follow I wonder through. How so, yeah, that, that's people... the idea. So, so we, we, we've tried to, yeah. So we've tried to do, um, we've tried to apply this commercially and I haven't seen any results yet. But reminding people that they had been a subscriber to a magazine and therefore should renew, rather than saying to people, um, you know, you once subscribed, you should renew. So oh. yeah, they're, 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 I haven't got any data back on that, but that—that's. I think it's something that could probably be applied a bit, a bit more. That's really interesting. I wonder how you get somebody from not being a thing to being a thing. My point being that what we're talking about here is the noun allows somebody to have that identity become attached. And what you're looking to do is for what the identity becomes attached to, to be the action that you want them to take. If you want people to vote, you tell them that they are a voter. But if there was a world in which it was really difficult to be a voter, or the only people that voted were people that earned over $100,000, I wonder how you get someone to believe in the new noun identity if they don't. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, I mean, the tactic, I think we might have talked about this last time. One tactic in this area is what's called the foot in the door technique, which is if you want people to adopt a new behavior, try and make the first request ridiculously easy. So there's a 1966 study where sometimes the experimenters, Friedman Fraser, asked people to put a, a giant sign saying drive carefully in their front garden no barely anyone does it other times they do a two-step process where first of all they ask people to put up a tiny little sticker saying drive carefully loads of people do it uh the psychologists leave wait two weeks and then they come up with the giant sign and in that second scenario three or four times more people put up the big sign and their argument is well you make the first request really easy so people feel like they have to do it because it would be uh, churlish not to, you know, such an important thing as, as road safety. Once they've put up that sign, you, know, you can then use that um, and the principle of consistency. Once they've put up the sign, you then uh, go back with your genuine ask and people will remember their past behaviour. They'll want to be consistent with that past behaviour. They'll think to themselves, I've put up the sticker. I must be interested in road safety. To be consistent with that, I better put up the giant sign. So I wonder if that, if you want to kickstart this identity, start small would be, would be the big thing. <laughs> Ironically. Yeah. Fairness. Oh yes. This was one of the most interesting 
areas, I think, when I was researching the book. Um, and it's the idea that people's reaction, even in commercial situations, is remarkably driven by fairness. We're not just interested in a good deal in an absolute sense. We are interested in being treated fairly compared to others. So the study that, that, that caught my eye was, I think it's a 1996 study. It's quite an old study. And it is with students. So, you know, take it with a pinch of salt. But it's a Blau and Baseman study. And when people arrive the first day at campus, they are asked whether they would help the psychologist the next day with a um, an experiment. They're going to have to turn up at the psychologist's lab, do 40 minutes of math puzzles, and they will be paid $7. Now, the people who were asked that, 72% of them agreed to take part. Next group of people, um, they are given the same basic request. Come to our lab tomorrow, do 40 minutes of maths puzzles. But this group are told you will be paid $8. However, they then follow up with a little white lie. They are then told that um, other people earlier were paid $10. But unfortunately, they've spent all their cash and they can only offer eight now. Now, in that scenario, there is a 25% drop in what people are prepared to uh, 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 to accept. So you get 54% of people agreeing to take part. Now, this is fascinating because what a classical economist would say is, well, it doesn't matter what other people are paid. All you should focus on is whether or not $8 is worth 40 minutes of your time. So you should have this increase. But if you think about the principle of fairness, people are enraged by this idea that others have got a, a better deal. Now, that study, I think, is fascinating because you can apply this in big and small ways if you're a brand. You can apply it in a big strategic way and think, how do I reframe my competition as treating their customers unfairly? And if you can do that, you can tap into this pool of anger that will motivate people to want to switch, come to your brand. Or if we're getting super tactical, you could apply this on your e-commerce site. So think about what virtually every e-commerce site does. Now, you're shopping for a pair of trainers. You've picked these trainers, uh, $100. You love them. They look amazing. You're completely happy. You put them in your basket. You go to checkout. And then above the checkout button, what is there normally? You know, normally, there is a giant box, you know, throbbing giant white box that says, you know, add your discount code. Now that transgress fairness norms. Essentially what you've done there is told your customer, you told these people who are completely happy to hand over the money that other people are getting a better deal. That will enrage them and they will go off and look for a discount code. Most of them will probably, probably never come back. So yeah, fairness, I think is a interesting area that too many brands ignore too many brands think that people are cold calculating machines but actually an awful lot of behavior is driven by you know not the absolute benefit of the offer it's am i get relatively getting good deal compared to other people shopify interestingly if you're on mobile, it's not the same if you're on desktop, but I would guess that probably at least 50%, maybe 70% or more of shopping is done on Shopify and mobile. Yeah. Their discount field is hidden behind a drop-down toggle. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a really nice idea because I think what that's working on, and I think Uber do something similar with like a 
um, you know, if you've got a promo code, it's a very recessive little link you can add. And I think they're working on the principle that people who have a code will be really looking for the way to put it. People who haven't won't. So that's one. By default, by default, given the fact that probably fewer people will be shopping with a code than without a code, why default to make the code and this big advert that you're paying more than you probably should do and more than other people potentially are? Yes. Yeah, I think absolutely. You could have a, um, you could only show the discount box, for example, for people you've driven there via affiliates. Uh, You could put up your prices by a percent and then populate the box with a 1% off code. And then anyone else who has an actual code could overwrite it. You know, there's loads of different ways. Did you you see, um, talking about fairness, I think this has stopped over the last few years, but there was a period, especially when Black Friday first became big in the UK, where fast fashion companies and jewelry companies would slowly creep the price of their product up throughout October into November, or they would just switch it over one week. And then the discount and people were using way back machine and internet archive and stuff to go back and look at what the old price of this product was and what they realized was that with the discount the price of the product was the same as it was when you could have purchased it at the start of october yes so i mean i think there is an opportunity there potentially for competitor brands to shine a light on that um i think there is also a self-interested doubt that you should have at the back of your mind about some of these tactics which is the difference in the short and the long term in the short term you will generate extra cash by um, some slightly nefarious tactics the danger you have is if people ever feel they have been manipulated too far then you get this this kind of um, uh, uh, retribution so you, you've got always got a bit of a balance of how much you should push some of these pricing tactics. Uh, and there's a lovely idea from, I think it's an American philosopher called John Rawls, who talks about, the, I think it was the publicity principle. And he basically talks about morality as if someone knew you were applying this tactic, would they be angry with you? And if they are, then it should set off some alarm bells and at least you can should consider whether it's worth doing. You know, it's a debate, I think, that, that, that Richard Thaler goes back and forth on the beginning of his book, Nudge. Are you familiar with Goodhart's Law? Yes. I. Uh, isn't it something along the lines of once a metric is used as a target, that metric loses all validity? Correct, Obviously, yeah. So um, yeah. You've, you've nailed it, yeah. It's when a... Let's say that your outcome that you wanted to get, um, that the metric that you were optimizing for was email subscribers. So you say, I want as many email subscribers as possible. So that's a target. What you're actually looking for, the outcome that you're looking for is something more like, I want lots of people that care about what I say to be interested and receiving my emails in a warm and welcoming way on a weekly basis. Like that's what you're actually optimizing for. But the measure that you're using as the outcome proxy is email subscribers. But if you start yeah. to optimize exclusively for that, what you could see is a world in which you said, uh, sign up to my mailing list and every person that does will be given a million pounds and yeah, will yeah. A, a free pair of shoes. And when people sign up and they find out that that isn't the promise that they're going to get, on the other side of that, you go, well, look, I, I achieved the target, which was get lots of email subscribers, but it wasn't the actual outcome that I was looking for. The measure ceases to be a good target. Yes. If there was a sliver of difference between what you're incentivizing and what you actually want, you generate some pretty 
dangerous um, repercussions. Uh, I think you had an apology. Is, is, is it Gneezy? I don't know how to pronounce it. Uri Neezy, yeah. Neezy, Neezy, sorry. Uh, wonderful book, Mixed Signals. And he talks, there's a, there's so a chapter in the middle and it's a wonderful um, coverage of some responses to ill-set incentives. So one of them he talks about, I think it might have been British archaeologists in, in China, where they, this is not kind of 19th century, they reward um, peasants there for bringing them pieces of fossil and they get a set amount of cash per piece. So what happens is those people are you know, very uh, uh, interested in maximising their income. So rather than bring a complete fossil bone, they find those fossil bones, they smash them into 20 pieces, then they take each piece <laughs> uh, one at a time to the, the archaeologist to maximise their, their income. So yeah, you've got to be very careful about uh, what incentive you set? Talking about fairness, COVID toilet roll prices in the UK. Oh, yes. So, um, gosh, that was a study I ran back uh, in the midst of COVID when people were um, hoarding toilet roll. And what I asked was, I set people a little thought experiment. I said, imagine your local supermarket was charging a pound for toilet roll. They've put up the price to say two pounds. I can't remember what it was during the shortage. Do you think this is fair? And it was a phenomenal proportion of people who said it was very unfair or unfair. It was something of the order of like 90%. Most economists would say this is just a reaction of supply and demand. But people don't treat prices in that manner. They feel that the exploitation of a surge in demand with excess pricing is unfair and there's a danger that they will uh, punish that, 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 that supplier. You also spoke about how you could use righteous indignation to compel people to do stuff. Yes. I, I kind of think this is something that isn't really used enough. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in fairness because we've talked about the Blount and Baseman study. People would rather have a smaller fee that everyone's getting than a large fee, but le- which is less than, 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 than others. Now, you also see that in uh, animals. There is an amazing video online that I would strongly recommend people Google afterwards. If you put in Franz de Wall, Capuchin Monkeys, Fairness video, what you will see is a pair of monkeys happily performing all sorts of tasks for a slice of cucumber. But if one of those monkeys is paid in grapes, which they rate as a better treat, and one is paid in cucumber, the monkey that is now being paid in cucumber will lose their rag. They will not perform for this, uh, this, this, this payment. So again, it's, it's a bias that you can see in humans and something we shared a common ancestor with three million years ago. When you see these drives of behavior straddling the species you'll know you're you're on something powerful so if i was a brand i would look at at ways of reframing my competition as behaving unfairly so if i was launching a um a competitive taxi brand to uber surge pricing i think is their achilles seal uh most banks if i was trying to compete with them if i was a new fintech startup i would be talking about uh or reaching people when they have just been hit by a fine, they've gone, you know, 
two pounds over their overdraft limit, they've just been hit with the 20 pound fine. That's a rare moment when people are so enraged, they're probably open to, to, to switching. So how do you reframe what your um, competition are doing as a, as, a, as, a, as a fairness transgression? Very nice. Freedom of choice. Mm. So this is an interesting area. There's, um, and my pronunciation is, is, is never very good. I was, I was always horrendous at languages at, at school. So uh, it is a French psychologist, I think, called Gagain. And he came up with an idea called the but you are free principle. So one of many bizarre psychology experiments where it involves the psychologist dressing up as a beggar. Uh, there's another one by a guy called Santos called the, um, the peak effect, uh, all around how surprising requests generate more, num- uh, more donations. But on this one, again, goes up to people uh, at a, or near a bus stop and he says, can you give me some coins so I can get a bus? And I think it's 10% of people give him some coins. Next group of people, he goes up, exactly the same request to begin with. But then at the end, he says, but you are free to accept or refuse. And the proportion of people who give him money jumps to, I think, 48%. That's a huge swing in behaviour. What's so interesting is, of course, everyone in both of those settings always had the ability to say no. All that's changed is the requester has drawn attention to the other person's ability to say no. So the argument here is one of the things that we love is to retain a sense of agency, a sense of control in the situation. So if you are trying to persuade someone to take out a subscription, to um, give you a rise. What you should be doing is drawing their attention to the fact they can say no. What Gagain's study suggests is that will increase the probability, slightly paradoxically, of them agreeing to your demands. So you want to involve people in the decision process in a way? Yes, but I think remind them of their right to say no. So it's not just um, involving them. I think it's give, reminding their sense of control uh, is the key thing. Now, of course, uh, you know, situations with beggars are a little bit bizarre. That fivefold increase is a very, very large one. So it's not just that situation where this but you are free principle works. Um, I think it was Carpenter who ran a meta-analysis, about 15 studies, I think, where he looked at lots of different people had run experiments where they had emphasised the other person's freedom to refuse. And there is a consistent increase in compliance. Now, it might not be as high as Gagain's study, but it's a consistent, wow, consistent increase. very reliable. So something else that seems to make sense here is if you were overly assertive when communicating with customers and there was a... Uh, a place in Austin, a recovery uh, center that had some internal strife and it it was going to change and all of the management was going to drop. Yeah. And they also decided to, along with that, so there was sort of a, how would you say, a foundation, a baseline uh, of ambient sort of discontent because there was some social murmurings and gossip about what was going on behind the scenes. And then one Saturday morning, every single member of this recovery place got an email that said prices are going up and it was going up by maybe 2x or 2.5x and you will be billed and the new prices kick in in 48 hours. Reply if you want to if you, if you yeah, cancel yeah. or something like that. And the number of people that I know who were really, really sort of 
upset, put off by that. And one, yeah. one of the main things that happened there was it was the kind of language that was used. It was basically like price is going up, uh, like it or lump it, you know, if you reply, if you want to cancel type thing. And that yeah, overly yeah, yeah. assertive language, I think, didn't do them very many favors. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems like they've got a kind of perfect storm of problems there. I think the one thing they did, or a couple of other things they did, they said that the price rise was going to be immediate. There's a lovely set of studies um, by people like Liam Delaney at the university. He was at the University of Stirling into what's called the present preference bias. So I think in one of his his studies, says to people, "Do you want to pay me thirteen pounds now, or sixteen pounds in a month's time?" And of the order of sixty percent of people would rather pay the larger amount in a month's time. Now, if you turn that into a monthly interest rate, I think it's 23%. If you turn it into an annualized interest rate, it's, some, it's over a 1,000% a year. It's a phenomenal interest rate, but people would prefer to pay it than give over the money in that instant. So what he argues is what he calls present preference bias. We overweight pleasure and the pain in the now, and we discount pleasure and pain in the future far, far too much. So if I was going to push that price rise through, I would give people loads of notice and tell them it's happening in two or three months' time because spending an extra £10 a month in that distant time period won't affect me. Knowing I've got to hand over £10 tomorrow, that's aggravating. Mm, so give me the the justification for charming versus cajoling uh, a, an audience member. It seems like charm is always going to work. Yeah, th- th- I mean, there are always, with all these, there are a few nuances. One of the interesting ones is... Um, the original kind of experimenter far earlier than uh, Gagain was a guy called Brem. I think it was Jack Brem. And he came up with an idea called reactants. So um, uh, it's the argument, if you feel your freedom is being curtailed, you can often push out against this. And the, one of the early studies was by a guy called Pennebacker at the University of Texas. And, and um, so he puts up signs in a men's washroom that's either says please don't graffiti or do not graffiti exclamation mark exclamation mark and he sees i think of the order of twice the amount of graffiti on the authoritarian sign but what's interesting so that's the same basic finding as you know, you're discussing we've got with again that if you're overly authoritarian it can backfire but one of the interesting nuances is the extent of that backfire effect depended on the authority level of the communicator. So if the sign was positioned as coming from the head of security, it really aggravated people. If the sign came from the groundsman, it didn't have much of a negative reaction in the, in the authoritarian manner. So the, the point being here is reactance is far more likely to occur if the message comes from someone in a position of power. So... If you are doing peer-to-peer communications of equal people, it might not be too much of an issue. If it is a letter coming from the tax office and they are um, behaving authoritarianly, it's much more likely to create this this negative reaction. So thinking about who the message comes from uh, is, is is an important one. I'm trying to work out why this effect would exist you know fairness makes a lot of sense it's reciprocal altruism it's not being taken for a ride we could see how that would be adaptive having i don't know this this pushback against a a tyrannical leader almost even if the tyrannical leader happens to be a badly worded poster or a poor email 48 hours notice about a price rise yeah um i find it fascinating that it seems like embedded in our psychology is a way that we react to the local ecology 
in terms of how tyrannical it is, uh, how authoritarian it is. Uh, it's mediated by the person that is giving that request in a way, which also suggests that we have some kind of softness bias toward people that are lower down the totem pole. I think the implications of this are really interesting. Yeah, I th- I, it's an interesting question about why it happens. And I wonder if you often look to some of these biases, is could there be an evolutionary explanation? And maybe it's a sense of, well, if we fear that we are losing control, that you know, reduces our life chances, potentially. If, if someone else is in charge, they're probably going to look after themselves rather than us, maybe. Maybe we are, are queued up to re- respond in that way, but that's slightly speculative. Yeah. There is uh, some good evidence that talks about two different types of leaders that would have happened ancestrally. So one that rises yeah. due to prestige and another that rises due to dominance. The one that rises due to dominance is preferred during times of warfare, times of strife, chaos, because you need the strong, no-nonsense, we are going to go and do this, we charge forward, you don't listen to anybody else, Like, let's just get this done. Those leaders don't perform anywhere near as well during times of peace. In fact, they're often killed. Homicide was yeah. the one of the most common forms of death from within the tribe, not from outside of the tribe. It was within yeah. the tribe, yeah. homicide. And um, yeah, I wonder whether there's, I don't know, would we have been at war or at peace most of the time ancestrally? Perhaps we would have been in times of peace, which means that we have almost this kind of um, uh, authoritarian radar or like a... a tyrannist radar that means oh if the way that i feel at the moment is if i'm in a bathroom and i'm just trying to take a piss in in peace yeah uh, this isn't the environment in which i will respond particularly well to someone that is using dominance to try and get me to do something um that's interesting so the next one which i learned from rory sutherland the first time actually was the red sneakers effect Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, so a lovely set of studies from Francesca Gino at the, the, the Harvard Business School. And the basic idea is if we see people breaking conventions, we assume they are higher status. So my favorite part of her study is a pilot study she did. So when she's testing out the basic idea, she goes out to academic conferences. And this is early 2000s. And the norm of behavior at these conferences, the convention is you should dress smartly. So if you're a bloke, you'd be expected to wear shirt, jacket. So as people are arriving at the conference, she monitors uh, their smartest dress and she notes it down. She then goes and finds those people and says to them, how many publications have you got? How many uh, citations have you got? So a citation is one review of your, or one mention of your work, your academic work in a peer review paper. So more citations, the more successful you are. You know, crude metric, but you know, pretty accurate. When she crosses the two bits of data, she sees a very clear inverse correlation. So the super successful academics, you know, the people who go on talk shows, um, you know, write newspaper columns, they're the ones who are most likely to be breaking the convention and dressing really scruffily. Whereas if you go down to the other end, the people with barely any citations, the people who've barely published anything, people who haven't got tenure, people who are just starting out in their career, they are much, much more likely to abide by the conventions. Now, Gino's argument is that you need status to break a convention. So imagine a situation in which um, you're at work. The CEO turns up wearing Bermuda shorts. Well, in that scenario, no one is going to send that person home. No one's going to criticize them. But if the intern does it, they get sent home, they get pilloried. So 
what Gino argues is you need a degree of social capital to af- to afford uh, or to be able to break convention. You can ignore some of the, the punishments and what or they won't be applied to you. And what she says is that people, and this is what her later studies show, is people are remarkably well attuned to this. So we see people breaking conventions, we assume they must be higher status. So I love this because many advertisers have heard the argument that if you behave distinctively, you're more likely to be noticed. What Gino adds is another layer, which is if you behave distinctively, if you break convention, you're more likely to be seen as high, higher status too. So it's a bit more kind of new news to most brands, to most businesses, to most communicators. How would you apply this? So I think for most brands, there are an awful lot of conventions in their category. If you think about how watch ads behave, how perfume ads, how car ads behave, most of them uh, abide by the same conventions. You know, Think about a, a press ad for a car ad. Nine times out of ten, it shows a beautiful mountainous sea in Bendy Road, and then there's the the car in, you know, uh, in a kind of profile shot. What Gino would say is, if you unthinkingly just repeat this convention in your advertising, you'll be um, seen as low status. What you should do is think of your category. Think of all the different conventions, split those conventions into two groups, some of which are there for a very good reason. Leave those well alone. Others are just there for tradition's sake. If you break those conventions, firstly, the Von Restoff effect says you'll be noticed, but also the Red Steakers effect says you're likely to be um, believed to be higher status, admired more. And this is mediated at least a little bit mm. by the um, existing awareness, the positioning of the brand. If yeah. uh, Kia decides to break convention, it's different to if Audi decides to break convention. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you're absolutely right. With all these studies, there are nuances and, and Gino looks a few. I think one of them is you need to be, or the audience needs to know you're breaking this on purpose. If they think you're breaking a convention through ignorance, it can backfire. Mm. Uh, and then secondly, yes, if someone is already perceived to be high status and they break convention, the rewards are much, much greater. If you get down to someone who is perceived already to be low status and they break convention, it can again backfire. So yeah, there's, there is a variance on those two, those two criteria. The halo effect. Uh, the halo effect. So this is an interesting one. It's essentially the idea that people's do not evaluate each element of another person discreetly. If they feel that someone is superior in one respect, it ripples out to all their other attributes. So the classic study, well, there are classic studies going back to the 1920s, but the one I really like is a 1977 study by Nisbet, recruits 118 people, and they all see a video of a Belgian academic giving a lecture now half the people see a video same content but the academics a little rude and comes across as a bit cold the other half of people see the academic uh, being more friendly and warm now as you'd expect when the two groups rate the likability of the academic the group who see the warm friendly academic rates them as 72 percent more likely so you just as you expect, you behave in a nice way, you're more likable. 
What's interesting, though, is Nisbet also asks about loads of other attributes of the, the lecturer. You know, what's their appearance like? How irritating is their accent? And he finds that when the lecturer was behaving in that friendly manner, people are twice as likely to enjoy the accent, think that he's good looking, as in the other scenario where he's behaving like a bit of an idiot. So the argument is here, if, if you have one dominant uh, positive or negative characteristic, that will affect how your other unrelated characteristics are, are interpreted. So what's interesting here is if you are a business and you're trying to communicate how amazing you are, how trustworthy you want to be, how high quality you are, you don't have to just communicate those things. You could pick another area, which is easier to impress people on, and then the expectation would all of your uh, attributes and your metrics would, would would improve. So it's almost a different way of thinking about what you should communicate. Don't necessarily communicate what matters, communicate what is easy to impress people on. And I think one area here for brands is think about, well, coming across as witty and charming. You could actually do that in advert. You could actually be funny. How you convince someone you are trustworthy or high quality, well, that's a nebulous thing that it's harder to do in an advert. So work with the limitations of the kind of communication medium uh, uh, and try and emphasize the metric that you can move, not necessarily the metric that you think matters. That's very interesting. I, I like the mm. fact that um, with the halo effect, which in pop psychology is traditionally to do with pretty privilege, basically, that you have good looking people and everybody presumes yeah. everything that they do is better. What you're saying here is that there are a number of different vectors upon which you could win if you were charming, if you were funny, if you were polite, if you were good looking, if you were tall, if you were reputable, if you were whatever, whatever, like educated, well-informed, so on and so forth. You can use whichever of these you can win at to trickle down and try and cascade all the rest of them. And I would imagine as well that there are some that are longer levers than others. I would imagine wit, humor, personability, sort of charm, uh, politeness, pleasantness, generally from an interpersonal perspective, are going to be things that will trickle downstream uh, more effectively because they're much more universal. Yeah, I mean, I, I, from, a, from a communications perspective, I, I think, and this is where it's, I'm kind of moving to speculative territory, so it'd be interesting in, in challenges on this one, but I wonder if something like behaving wittily, you, you, you can do that in an advert, you can make a joke. You don't just have to claim that you're funny. The problem with when it comes to attributes like tr trustworthiness or premiumness, it's very hard to absolutely demonstrate. You have to make a, a, a claim. And the problem with claims is why would anyone believe them? Because if you are low quality or high quality, you're both going to say you're amazing quality. You know, a claim is, is completely empty. Much more powerful to focus on things that can be demonstrated rather than claims. And I wonder if that's why you're right on, on areas like wit. It's something you can demonstrate rather than just state. What about being too clever? There must be such a thing as that. Oh, that's interesting. So, I mean, I wonder the, the closest study I've seen there is the, the Prattfall effect, the original 1966 study by Elliot Aronson. So he recruits a, uh, a colleague of his taking part in a quiz, and the guy is given secretly the questions and the answers by Aronson. So does amazingly well, 
I think gets 90 or 92% of the questions right, wins the quiz by miles. Now, when people are played a recording of that amazing quiz performance, he and they're asked how much they like the conquest contestant, the listeners give a so-so rating. Next group of people, they're played the same recording of the amazing quiz performance, but there is an additional 30 seconds. And in the final moments of the quiz, the contestant makes a cock up. He spills a cup of coffee down himself. In that scenario, the listeners who get that recording rate the contestant as 40 or 45% more appealing. So I think you're right there. It can be this thing of perfection can be irritating. If someone comes across as this amazing um, genius, well, uh, you know, our reaction is maybe to hate them somewhat because we feel worse in comparison. If they spill a cup of coffee down themselves, they're no longer seen as maybe quite so much of a threat and therefore they can come across a, a, as a bit more appealing. So I think there is, there might be, so, yeah, I think there is something in what you say. Um, in the world of online content creation, there's a, a hmm. number of people who are really struggling at the moment because they never show vulnerability. People know that they've got vulnerability. People know that they their self-righteousness or the fact that they are, you know, unperturbed by whatever criticisms come from the internet. And a lot of these people are like quite worthy of criticism. But that has galvanized huge Reddit threads. There's hundreds of thousands of people in certain subcorners of the internet that basically are trying to find the vector on which they can finally get this person to show that something is actually bothering them. And I think that it's almost that sort of too perfect concern that we've got here. Yeah. If someone yeah. never shows any um weakness vulnerability we become skeptical of that because we see it for ourselves the you know first off we're skeptical because we think everybody has this secondly we are um untrusting of them because we presume that they must be hiding what it is that they've got behind it thirdly we would say well i'm going to continue to poke and poke and poke because this is a fun game to see how much this person can take before they do end up breaking uh yeah it kind of creates a perfect storm to galvanize people to try and take someone down and i've seen this multiple times and it's basically the same formula yeah i think i think um there's a i think you're absolutely right there is a um there's a lovely study by northwestern university where they look at likelihood to purchase products after reading a product review so it's all numeric product reviews zero to five five being perfect zero being crap uh, and what they show is as the review gets better people become more likely to purchase and they look at hundred thousand different um, you know, offerings. So it's a huge sample. But what they find for every of the 20, 25 categories that they look at, for every every one of those categories, the highest rate of purchase is not at fi uh, a five out of five reviews. It's at somewhere between, I think, 4.2 and 4.5. That's where purchasing peaks. And if the reviews get any better, purchase rates decline. Their argument is exactly as you say, which is that perfection is too good to be true. If you find a kind of, I don't know, a random supplement brand that you've never heard of and it gets 10,000 five-star reviews, what's more likely that it's actually perfect or something's being manipulated? People, if they see 4.7 or 4.8, therefore they're more likely to believe these are honest and give it the, um, the, 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 the credence it, it deserves. So I think you're right. There are some studies commercially that show perfection can be, can be off-putting. Peak end rule, which a lot of people listening will be familiar with, the original study that was done with endoscopies, colonoscopies. 
I think it was colonoscopies. Yeah, um, not, not, a, not, a fun, yeah. not a fun procedure. No, 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 no not, not a fun thing. Not not something that uh, normally gets experimented upon. Yeah, there's a, there's a lovely um, Kahneman and Radelmeyer study. They recruit a group of people, and these are genuine patients going in for colonoscopies. Every patient is given a handheld device that buzzes every minute, and when it buzzes, the patients have to turn a dial to say how much pain they're in. Zero, none at all. Ten excruciating. So average colonoscopy lasts 15 minutes. So they get 15 ratings from what they call the experiencing self. These are in-moment ratings. Next, they get a rating from the patient as they're leaving the hospital and then two months after the operation. And that is another rating reflecting on how painful overall the operation was. The expectation before the study was the the average ratings from the remembering self, those reflective ratings, should be roughly the same as the average rating from the experiencing self. But that is not what happens. The average amount of pain people experienced is only a poor guide to what people remember. What's a much better guide are two moments in particular. The peak moment, the single worst moment of that operation is disproportionately important, and the final moments. So you could, for example, have a low level of pain for 13 minutes and then a medium level of pain for two minutes and that person would remember the experience worse than somebody who had a medium level of pain for 13 minutes and a low level of pain for for two minutes at the end it's the final moments that are disproportionately important it's the single worst moment that's disproportionately important in shaping memory now that's fascinating because that can be applied by brands. You might think colonoscopy is a far too different a, uh, a world, but that idea that some moments matter more than others can be applied to any brand experience. So a couple of examples. I love a restaurant in London called Flat Iron. Steak restaurant, reasonably priced, like I know, 15 pounds for a steak, $20. You have your steak. Well, after they've given you the bill, they give you this tiny little pair of miniature steak knives and they say, I'll oh, just hand these in as you're leaving. You hand them into the person at the cloakroom, by the door, and in return, they give you a salted caramel ice cream. Now, most restaurants end on the worst moment. They end on the bill, the paying, the faffing around, with splitting the, the cash, all that kind of stuff. What Flatiron do so cleverly is they create a high for that final moment as you leave. And I bet you most people who remember, uh, uh, most people who visit a flat and I will remember that single instance. Is there so, something to do with the effort yeah. of it not just being everybody on the way out gets a salted caramel ice cream? It's that you have to take the thing, get the thing, give it in. Oh, that's interesting. So I, I was thinking, I wonder if some of the appeal is, it's unexpected and it's surprising. It's also done after the bill. It doesn't feel like it's some kind of commercial transaction. Well, if you come into my restaurant, I'll give you an ice cream for free. That's just a negotiation. This seemingly is done out of the largest, uh, 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 you know, the, the, you know, the, the, it's done out of the kind of um, beauty of their soul, as it were, or whatever. They don't seem to have an obvious financial benefit. I wonder if that makes it so so positive. Have I told you about the thing we did with lollipops at nightclubs? Oh, I don't think so. Go on. Okay, so I learned about the peak end rule six ah. or seven years ago yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and we were encountering a number of challenges one of them being that a lot of nightclubs are in high built-up city-centered neighborhood oh, places yeah 
noise abatement orders come not only from the sound of the speakers, but also from the sound of egress when people leave. And yeah. if you dump a thousand 18 year olds on the street at three in the morning, they start chanting things, they yeah. run around and scream and, yeah. and laugh and fight yeah. and kick each other. So we needed to come up with a solution. And I tried my best to come up with a peak end rule that did both of the things that we needed. Nice. So nice. what we did was as people were leaving, we had two good-looking girls stood with buckets of lollipops, like just little sweet lollies. Giving them a lolly meant that they had something in their mouth, which meant they were much less likely to start chanting and singing. Yeah, The sugar high seemed to have a reduction in the number of people that hung around afterward because it gave them enough of a little bit of energy to get them into a taxi and home. It meant that yeah. they didn't hang around the takeaways and do that stuff for quite so long. And hopefully it gave them a, oh, that was, wasn't that nice? Do you remember that lollipop that we gave or whatever? Yeah. Sometimes we give people um, uh, pound coins that had stickers on and the sticker was a flyer for our uh, club night. And if they came yeah. back with just the one pound coin, they could get in for a pound with that one pound coin, but they had to hold on to it. That was something yeah. else that we tried doing. But yeah, the, the, that lollipop thing, that was pure peak end. That's a lovely idea. Do you know, that remind me, who you should talk to? Um, there is an amazing guy called Stephen Colgan. Uh, I might have got that pronunciation slightly wrong again. Um, and he was at the the Met, I think, for 20 years. And he was became fascinated with behavioural science. And he used all sorts of behavioural science tactics to reduce crime. And I, I, yeah, so the lollipop idea reminds me of saying that, that, that he once uh, talks about this whole idea. If you give someone a lollipop coming out of a, a nightclub, you know, it also makes them feel a bit like childish and optimistic. They're less likely to punch someone else in the face. So that, no one's ever had a fight painting. whilst they've got a lollipop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a really hazard. Yeah. 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 What about uh, someone that's doing something that's less experiential than a flat iron or a club night in terms of peak end rule? Um, I mean, the, the other one that I've seen uh, apply, and it's not all about kind of sweets. I feel like we've come to ice creams, lollies and uh, Haribo. Um, uh, wiggle. So they're a cycle brand in in the UK. Uh, one of the things they do, you've ordered your fancy helmet and Lycra. They'll put into the order without telling you, you know, five pence bag of Haribo. Now, it's an unexpected, delightful mm. thing at the end of the, the journey. Now, what I think is interesting about this is most brands think about how do we make a brilliant first impression? What uh, Wiggle what your nightclub example, flat iron, what they're doing is saying, well, yeah, maybe first impression is important, but actually if we want people to come back to our restaurant or nightclub in a few months' time, if we end on a high, they're much more likely to remember it. So I think it reorders people's prioritisation of where they put their efforts. And the second thing it does is in some organisations, and this is the peak part, what they do is they think we've got these hundred different areas of our experience, our hotel or our restaurant. Let's try and make them all a little bit better. What the peak end rule would suggest is, well, you'll fritter away your budget and it won't have much of an impact. What you should do instead is think about, well, let's put all our budget, our creative budget into the our, our lollies at the end mm -hmm. or all our um, budget rather than slightly better uniforms for the people at Flatiron, slightly fancy cutlery. Let's put it into the salted caramel idea you know you pick one moment of excellence rather than trying to do everything a little bit better very interesting so i think there are some broad implications i imagine that both the peak and the end could be the same thing as well oh yeah absolutely i mean you ideally could argue well that if you're going to create a peak moment 
best it's at the, the final because you get two you two multipliers on that mm. yeah. yeah um there's a, a restaurant called tiki tatsuya out here in austin and it's a sort of tiki hawaiian themed thing and every i think it's every hour or every 30 minutes all of the lights shut off and this huge show occurs where light projection runs across the ceiling and this tiki head bursts into flames and all sorts of stuff happens. Yeah. And it's actually quite intrusive if you're in the middle of an interesting, but it's done in a really charming way and it's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I want to say it's maybe every half an hour to 45 minutes. So it maybe happens twice during a typical meal. Uh, and Frankenstein's in Edinburgh, which is on, I want to say yeah. it's, it's just at the top next to the vodka revolution. Um, they have every hour or every 90 minutes uh automatronic frankenstein gets lowered from the ceiling and uh, electric fire lightning sounds come and then he sits up and oh, ha, 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 all that shit happens and it's kind of cheesy and kind of a bit shit but at the same time you go that was nice that was you I, and i've i've remembered it do you know what i mean i've remembered both of those things to you if you told me when i went to dean's italian what the peak part of it was it's like oh well the mashed potato was pretty nice i guess or whatever there's nothing there Yes, I mean, yeah, you can argue whether or not you want the main memory to be the uh, Frankenstein guy coming down from the ceiling. But what you've certainly shown is, you know, that that is something that is at least memorable. So the PKN rule, I think, suggests the tactic of doing one thing excellently rather than lots of things well, and may and ideally putting that at the final part of your experience. How you then uh, create that? Uh, kind of highlight moment. Well, that then I think is a little bit of uh, sub- subjectivity. Beautiful. Richard Shotton, again, ladies oh. and gentlemen, where should people go if they want to keep up to date with all the stuff that you're doing at the moment? Oh, well, I've just released the book. So a book called The Illusion of Choice. So you can get that on Amazon or any of the big uh, retailers. Have a look there. Uh, and then on Twitter, at R. Shotton, Whenever I see an interesting article or experiment about psychology or behavioral science and how it can be applied in marketing or advertising, I'll, I'll post it up there. So either of those places are good. You have one of the coveted 99 follower spots on my Instagram, Richard. Oh, very well, very well deserved. Uh, mate, I really appreciate you. I love the stuff that you do. I can't wait to see what you do next. And when it is ready, you will be coming back on and we will talk about yeah. it again. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Chris. Much appreciated. Thank you very much for tuning in. I always enjoy having Richard on the show. I think that's the fourth time that he's come on now. Always great to learn about human nature and why we are the way we are. I'm going to leave you with a quote from Morgan Housel here that says, The best measure of wealth is what you have minus what you want. By this measure, some billionaires are broke. I'll see you next time.